Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. Uh, blessed Lord's Day to you. We are uh, thankful that you are here, and uh, if uh, you're visiting with us, then please take advantage of this Sunday to get to know some people. If, you are, if you're just glad to see your fellow brothers and sisters and fellow members of the body of Christ, we're glad that you struck up conversations. Continue those conversations after church or after service. We got, we got uh, some refreshment time and just some time to relax uh, before we do some uh, second hour Sunday school stuff. So thankful that you are here. So let's turn in the scriptures now as we continue in our time of worship to Romans chapter 14. To Romans chapter 14. And as you turn there, just to kind of give you a quick background in terms of what we've been doing, we've been studying through the entire book of Romans. We're here in the 14th chapter. And to give an, a layout of how we got here, we began with the gospel, um, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for us and through faith in him, we might be declared righteous. A righteousness you can't earn, you don't deserve, but that he grants to you free, freely, absolutely, and comprehensively, meaning that when he dies on the cross for your sins, it is paid for in full, complete, and absolute. Well, that gospel, that good news, was explained out in the first 11 chapters of Romans, and then in chapter 12, you begin this pivot where it's talking about how the gospel might be applied to all different areas of life. Um, 12 verses 1 and 2 talk specifically about making our lives um, a living sacrifice, offering, our, offering ourselves as if we are in an act of worship seeking to honor Jesus Christ with our lives. That's, that's the general layout, verses 1 and 2, of everything, that else is, that, everything else that was to follow it began to speak about serving the church using our gifts in chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. It talked about applying the gospel and how we're to love everybody, right, with the love of God in verses 9 through 21 of chapter 12. Then chapter 13 spoke of uh, applying the gospel to submission to authority, applying the gospel to understand what is the law of God concerning love, applying the gospel to issues of the struggles of the flesh, applying the gospel now in chapter 14 through 15, the first part, to liberty, to how we get along in differences. And last week we talked about that, how there is gospel unity in the midst of great diversity. And when you have so many different people with different scruples, scruples I mean different consciences, we are calibrated, each of us, slightly differently. And when you bring a whole bunch of Christians who all love the Lord and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they come with different kind of sensitivities to what is or is not sin, you have all kinds of run-ins. Like, for example, in 1928... The year I was born. No, I wasn't born in 1928. That, that would have been awesome if I was. But in 1928, there was a conference for young people in Donald Gray Barnhouse. And if you know that name, if you don't know that name, um, he says the greatest wing dingers. I mean, he is so, such an interesting and wonderful uh, man of God. But nevertheless, in 1928, in the conference for young people, Don, Donald G. Barnhouse is preaching. And after one of the sermons, a small group of ladies came up to him. And they were, you know, conscientious ladies. They, they asked uh, Dr. Barnhouse to rebuke the girls who were not wearing stockings at this conference. I know, uh, from your faces, you are thinking what I'm thinking. What, what, what even does that mean, right? So, so see, so at, it was a time in, um, in, in Christian, in, in cultural Christianity in America where, where you know, ladies would wear stockings. And, and it signified that they were, you know, they were, they were chaste and they were, they were proper. They were seeking a godly life. To not wear them, at least to these ladies, seemed very worldly and sinful. And this is what uh, Dr. Barnhouse writes about that moment that they asked him to rebuke these other women who were not wearing stockings. He said, looking them straight in the eye, I said, the Virgin Mary never wore stockings. They gasped and said, she didn't? And I answered, in Mary's times, stockings were unknown. So far as we know, they were first worn by prostitutes in Italy in the 15th century during the Renaissance. 
Later, a lady of nobility wore stockings at a court ball, greatly to the scandal of many. Before long, however, everyone in the upper classes was wearing stockings. He goes on to say, these ladies, who were holdovers from a Victorian epic, had no more to say. I did not rebuke the girls for not wearing stockings. And a year or two afterwards, most girls in the United States were going without stockings in the summer, and nobody thought anything about it. Nor do I believe that this led toward the disintegration of moral standards in the United States. Times were changing, and the step away from Victorian legalism was all for the better. See, and, and I think Dr. Barnhouse, I think, handled that situation well. He didn't just come out and just blast off on these ladies for being legalistic and for being silly. He explained to them that the background of some of the things that they may be slightly less informed about might suggest that some things at, at differing times and in different cultures might be considered sinful. And at other times and in other cultures might not be a thing at all. The key is, is it a biblical principle? Or is it something that you are sensitive, is it something that you are bringing in, right, into your version of holiness and sanctification. And so that's come this morning. We want to continue in this study of dealing with one another's liberties, dealing with one another's different um, preset conscience states, right? In terms of how, how we understand what is and isn't good, those things that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. And uh, the principle is that there is a gospel-defined unity, but that we should handle that with care. If the first section we looked at in the first part of chapter 14 was just a stark warning of being mindful that there are differences among us and that we should not judge, nor should we despise one another. Then here, Paul continues that, thing, uh, that, that same theme, and he will, he will dig in a little bit further in terms of how to do that. And I think the, 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 I think the underlying caveat that we are to draw away from it from this passage is that we are to treat each other with with gospel christian care so let's uh dive in this is romans chapter 14 13 through 23 and uh um we will begin with uh, the first point oh let me give you all four yeah okay well let's let's just start with one that that's maybe that that works a little bit better all right number one Love your conscientious brother. Now, now listen. Now, notice I didn't say your contentious brother, right? And I'm not saying you shouldn't love that contentious brother. There's contentious brothers and sisters, um, and that's just, you know, that's just the fabric of our existence, right? We're all still struggling with our flesh, and some of us struggle in certain areas while others don't. But we are to love our conscientious brother or sister in Christ. We are to recognize them as fellow believers. We are to think about them as um, a child of God, and we are to cast our love, the love of God, upon them. So love your conscientious brother. And under that, point A, if I could get point A to go here. No, that's not working. The next slide we'll have, well, there you go, thank you. Don't stumble your brother. This is, uh, um, this is verse uh, 13. Look at verse 13 there. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Right? It begins by saying, don't pass judgment on one another. But notice that phrase, right, in the first part of verse 13, any longer. What is implied immediately in the way that Paul shapes this particular verse and the phrasing here is that there has already been, right, this casting of judgment on one another. And I think the idea of casting judgment here, we could translate that word judgment as simply criticize. He, he already began this, this discussion in verse 3 and verse 10 of this chapter. He says that there are those that are strong in conscience, meaning, let's say, for example, it is over the issue of eating meat offered to idols. There are those that are strong. They don't feel like this is a bad thing at all. It doesn't bother their conscience. So in that sense, they are strong. It doesn't mean that they're necessarily more mature in Christ. In fact, the way that they treat the younger, the weaker brother will tell you more about their actual maturity spiritually than about where they land in terms of whether or not this meat offered to autos is an important thing. 
that strong person has a, that strong conscience has the capacity of looking down and despising and treating badly the person with a weak conscience. Well, on the flip side, the person that's a weak conscience, meaning the individual that is sensitive and feels like we shouldn't be eating meat offered to idols. Man, this stuff is, this is connected with idolatry. Maybe I came out of that. Or maybe I, I was once, a, 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 you know, um, you know, a very careful, kosher-eating Jewish young man, and now that I believe in Jesus Christ as my Messiah, I don't want to be connected with those pagan things. Those are still pagan things. He has a sensitive conscience. That, that individual is tempted, not, not so much as despising the other individual, but as judging them, declaring that that person is in sin. I can't believe girls aren't wearing stockings. I'm suspicious that many of you ladies in the room are not wearing stockings. I'll be honest, I don't know what stocking means. I, I'm assuming it's like high socks or something, right? That's what I, I think of it as. But whatever it is, right? Like that was a dividing line of holiness for some. That's the weaker conscience. And so here, I think the command is stop trying to stumble your brother or sister in Christ. Don't pass judgment on them any longer. You have been. But instead, decide. It's the same word for judgment. That interesting word in the New Testament can be used in its context for judgment, for discernment, for thinking, right? So it's not just judgmentalism, right? But here, the same word, it's saying you've been passing judgment, criticizing one another. Stop that. Instead, use your good judgment in a different way. Decide, set in your heart and your mind, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. The idea of a stumbling block or a hindrance is this. A stumbling block would be like you put out a stone, right? and not, not intentionally. Maybe you put a pot you know, um, out because you're, you're, you're growing a little sprout or something. You put it like on the walkway up to your house. And the mailman coming doesn't pay attention, and he steps, it becomes a stumbling block for him. He trips over that. The, the key in the stumbling block is not necessarily intentional. That's not the purpose of the rock or the pot or the brick or what, whatever happens to be there. Um, parents think in your minds, Legos, right? The kids play with Legos, they leave it out, you walk around, you step on it, you're like, ah, right? Like it's unintentional, nevertheless, it's a source of pain. The second word, hindrance, is a word that is more intentional, and I think that's the difference between the two words here. Whereas stumbling blocks just happen to be there and might trip you up, a hindrance, other translations might say an obstacle, refers more, more technically to the, the bait stick of a trap. Think not Legos, right? Not haphazard. Um, but think um, more intentional, like a trap, like a rat trap, you know? And the obstacle is the trigger, is the mechanism, right? Whether it's a piece of stick or it's a little loop or something that triggers the trap. So you can be unintentional, leaving Legos out, or you can be intentional. Pastor, what do you think about, I don't know, stocking wearing, you know? And I would be like, well, I don't, you don't have to wear it. I think you're supposed to hang them up for Christmas, right? And I, I don't even know what you're talking about, right? Like it could be said out there intentionally, and, and Paul is exhorting all of us not to do any of the above. Don't pass judgment. Don't criticize. Don't look down on. Instead, use your good capacities to make sure that you are not accidentally leaving a stumbling block or intentionally seeing if you could trap your brother or sister in Christ. Now, let me pause there for a moment. When it comes to our sensitivities, right, to what is or what feels like sin that is not clearly defined in Scripture, and, and the sinful reaction that we might have to others that are not quite like us. Can I remind you of something? This is the Matthew 7 principle, right? Take the log out of your own eye before you work on the splinter in his or hers. In other words, adjust your own lens first. Begin with your own heart. When Scripture says something like, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, the first thing that you should not gravitate towards is, yeah, that guy keeps casting judgment on me. Right? Yeah, that, that's right. That sister's always kind of being judgmental and legalistic towards me. Now the first stop immediately is to ask yourself, is this true of me? 
Do I unintentionally leave something that someone could stumble over? Do I intentionally set something to try to prove a point and try to declare that this is a more righteous way to live? Am I mistreating God's people? Notice the word brother. We should underline that in our minds. We should decide. We should use our sanctified imagination and our capacities to think never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister in Christ. Don't stumble your brother. Point B. I won't even do it. I'll ask them to do it. Point B. Understand uncleanness. Look at verse 14. Now this is important and I think an implied um, uh, significant application that 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 is here. Verse 14 says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. I know your heart's immediately gravitating towards that second part, which is very interesting, but let's begin with that first half of that verse. I know and am persuaded. Both of those are perfect tenses. We could translate it, and it, it, you know, it doesn't sound smooth, but it would be something like, I have come to know with certainty and have been fully persuaded with certainty in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Now take that phrase, because that's significant. Paul is making a, a, a very strong statement that when it comes to things like food, or when it comes to things that are not biblically principled, meaning you don't have text and verse for it, if there's not text and verse, Paul is saying, I have come to be convinced and I know, right, I have come to know thoroughly, I am convinced fully in the Lord Jesus. In other words, it's not because I just want to do my own thing. I still, in submission to him who is actually my Lord, with all of these things in mind, I have become fully convinced that nothing is unclean in, its, in itself. In other words, inanimate things in themselves do not hold moral value. They're just a thing. Your car is a thing. How you use it, how much you love it, how much you, know, you, you, you care for that over you know, spending time with people, whatever. That, that, that is a different reality. That's your reaction or application of it, but it's still just a thing. Food offered to meat, could be steak, could be lamb. This is probably lamb, by the way, right? It's just meat. That's what it is. Drink is just drink. Whatever it is, it is morally neutral, and that's what Paul is saying. Now, that's a significant theological statement. Because being in Christ means that there are some things that are absolutely certain. That there is a God, He has sent His Son. God is perfectly holy, I am absolutely sinful, and without the blood of Jesus Christ, I cannot be forgiven of my sins, nor can I have eternal life. Well, in that same vein as those kind of doctrines, Paul is saying this is an absolute certainty. Nothing is unclean in and of itself. Now, he will will clarify that even further in 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 4 to 6, he's dealing with the idea specifically of meat offered to idols, and this is what he says there. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, listen, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, air quotes, right? And many lords, air quotes. Yet for us, there is one God and Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through um, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So Paul makes it clear. He doubles down and makes it very clear, even as he's dealing with, hey, you need to love that brother that is sensitive to meat. In in fact, in that same passage in 1 Corinthians 8, when he's dealing with that, Paul's going to get to the point where he's going to say, listen, if, if my eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I will stop eating meat. That's when you know a brother loves somebody, right? When they... Unless Adam Pauly. Adam Pauly just doesn't eat meat. But Adam will do the opposite for us. Occasionally we'll go out to eat and it just happens to be, for some odd reason, we go to some place that have no vegetarian offering, right? And Adam will eat meat with us. Praise the Lord. That is him accommodating us, right? Because we we don't want to accommodate him. (laughs) I know that, that, that doesn't sound quite right. 
Nevertheless, you see that in Scripture, certain things are made explicitly clear. There is no such thing as idols. So meat offered to idols, yes, it might, it might feel weird to some because of your background, because of what you know, because of how you've been trained, because of how you've been raised. But he's saying, theologically speaking, the facts of Scripture do not declare any meat unclean. In fact, Mark 7, 18 through 19 Remember, this is when Jesus says, don't you understand? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside doesn't defile him since it enters into his heart, but since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And in parentheses in verse 19, it says, thus he declared all foods clean. There's other portions of passages. There's other passages of scripture we could turn to. Uh, 1 Timothy 4 talks about the, um, the, le- the legalists that are not brothers and sisters in Christ who are forbidding marriage, requiring abstinence from certain foods that God has declared to be received, um, to be gle- declared to be good and should be received with thankfulness, right? That's 1 Timothy 4. Acts 10, remember Peter sees this vision of, of this sheet coming down with all these creepy crawly things and all the things that he's not supposed to eat according to Jewish law. And then he says, Lord, I, I'm not going to eat. I, that's unclean. And God says on three, he repeats that. It's, it's on loop, right? It's on TikTok. Isn't, does TikTok loop? I'm, I may be mistaken. Nevertheless, right, it's on loop, right? Three times this happens over and over. Peter says, I'm not going to eat that. It's unclean. And God keeps saying, what I have made clean, do not call unclean. So why, why, am, I, why am I kind of camping here? maybe longer than I should. Because what we want to understand, first of all, is that the principle, in, in principle, the strong conscience is correct. Do you, do you get what I'm saying here? In other words, if we want to talk about just the biblical argument, Paul is going to say, right? And he does say intentionally, I, as an apostle, have come to know and am fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus. So this isn't just my opinion. This is me as an apostle and Jesus as my Lord. Nothing is unclean of itself. The weak in conscience, at least in this particular area, are factually incorrect. Or could we say it, we will refine that a little bit and say that better. The weak of conscience in, in regard to meat offered to idols are biblically incorrect. They're, they are not on the correct, right? They, they are not accurate as to what Scripture says. Do you understand that? I'm, hopefully I'm not offending any in that, but I'm trying to say, and the reason why I'm saying that is because the truth of what this meat actually is is constantly pushed out there. Not, not pushed down upon them, but it's placed out there. Jesus does that. Paul does that on different occasions. And I think the point of it is to say that there is a biblical truth or there is not a biblical mandate concerning this issue. That's the biblical truth. Then let's begin to talk about then how do we deal with someone that is still sensitive to that. Here's the second part. right? But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. See, it's not Scripture that is determining these things as being unclean to someone. It is sourced in their own mind, in their own heart. You see, before we, see, you can see, right? I could see that if we stopped our argument here, if we stopped the sermon here, we kind of understand the strong being a little bit mean to the weak and saying, man, bro, you got to grow up. You're not thinking well. Would you, would you stop making everything an issue of sin, right? You, you could see how the strong could kind of bear down on the, the sensitive conscience and be kind of mean to them because it is, even as the Word of God says it, it is sourced in their own heart and mind more than in Scripture. It's not a scriptural thing is what Paul is explicitly saying. It is instead, it's sourced in something else, their experience, their training, their culture, their tradition, um, and things that they have thought, how they have, they, how they have been sinned against, or how this has marked their lives, etc. There is reasons why they feel that sensitive individually, but it comes as, as anecdotal from inside. It is an issue of their own thoughts. But Paul says this, it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean, and he's going to say more about that in a little bit. But the point being, they believe, they feel like this is unclean. And the source of that 
that unclean judgment is not scripture, it's in themselves. The word unclean is uh, uh, koinon, from koine. And if you guys know, um, the New Testament Greek, uh, it, that family of Greek the New, that the New Testament is written in, we call it koine Greek. It's, it's common, right? Uh, Greek. It's the, it's the Greek of commoners. It's the way that they used um, regular Greek. It's not classical Greek, like, you know, you read Aristotle and those, those like, kind of smart dudes, right, of the past, those Greek scholars. They write in a slightly more classical style. That would be classical. Koine, it means that it is common. That term for common, then, can be used in this way to say that something so so common that it is really unclean as opposed to something that is that is sanctified that is consecrated this is just unclean in mark 7 right the disciples ate with hands that were koine or koinon and we translate that defiled they didn't wash their hands and so as the jews looked at that they said dude your hands are unclean and why did the disciples eat right with defiled hands, with unclean hands. And again, let me remind you, their hands, okay, look, okay, see, this gets a little complicated, right? Scientifically, yep, their hands probably are unclean. They don't have you know, hand sanitizer, right? They, and as far as I know, there's no running water, so they didn't probably, right, nearby, so they probably didn't wash with hand soap and stuff like that, so it's probably some germs and stuff like that. But in the ceremonial sense of unclean, there is no such thing. There is nothing about what they are doing with their hands that makes that spiritually unclean. But to the Pharisees, it was certainly spiritually unclean. So we need to understand both that the uncleanness doesn't come from Scripture. The uncleanness comes from the sensitivity of that individual. Keep that in mind, right? Because that matters. Because I think the implication of that would be that if you are that sensitive brother or sister, that over time... Part of your charge is to grow in your understanding of what Scripture actually says about whether this is a clean thing or not a clean thing, or if it's scripturally neutral. That's something you need to grow in. But you notice that Paul doesn't, he doesn't just bear down on that. He just puts it out there and is gracious about how we are to deal with them. And I think that's exactly the principle we are to apply. So don't stumble your brother, that's clear. Understand uncleanness, both that it is not a biblical issue, but it is more of a conscious or individual opinion issue. It comes from their own heart. So how do, what do you do? Do you train them? Do you beat them? Do you, you know what I mean? Do you force them to eat it so that they get over their weakness? No. The opposite. Paul says then, verse 15, For if your brother, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. So Paul's admonition in such situations would be you need to walk in love for your brother. Your brother is grieved by what you eat. That's, that's not just sad, right? Because, you know, we, we, we'd be sad all the time. I'm sad, you know? I'm a Dodgers fan. Some of you guys are Giants fans. Some of you guys say, hey, how's the Dodgers game yesterday? And I'll go, I'm sad, right? Now, I'm not, I'm not grieved. I don't think I'm grieved, right? Not, not yet. How about that? There's still like seven, eight games, so I'm not grieved, right? But grieved means that you are deeply pained. This, this is the kind of pain that is expressed, right? When you are suffering or mourning over the loss of a loved one. So Paul's saying, wait, wait, you know, you need to walk in love. You need to be thoughtful of, uh, of what it means for your brother that he is grieved by what you eat, that he is he is actually injured emotionally, right, um, by what you eat. I, I, I want to appreciate, right, um, Martin Luther in um, On the Freedom of a Christian Man. He begins with this statement. It's a treatise on uh, Christian freedoms, and he says, A Christian man is a most free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian man is a most dutiful servant, servant of all. Yeah, he said both of those sentences, right? So he intentionally begins by saying that there is a sense in which Christian men and women are free to do anything that is not forbidden by Scripture, and they're subject to no one about their liberties. Then immediately, the very next verse, and he sets it in an exact parallel structure, he says the Christian man is a most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. 
He's trying to say we're in both worlds. Do you have freedom in Christ? If it's not a biblical issue, you absolutely have freedom in Christ. Can you just, you know, force other people who think that it's sinful not to wear stockings to just, hey, just stop wearing stockings. Just grow up with the times. Absolutely not. You serve all those that are around you. And your need to express why you are correct often is an expression not of love, not of Christian love, not of gospel uniting love, but of your own pride. You are, it says, if you are grieving your brother over what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. The implication there is that this is what Christians do. They walk in love. Walk is the metaphor in the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter, right? For how you get from point A to point B in life. This is the manner of your living. This isn't, just, this isn't the, your particular direction. This is like, regardless of what you're headed to do, regardless of what you're headed to be, regardless of what your goals in life are, how do you get there? Part of the manner, the way that you walk, right? Do you walk like, you know, you know I, got, I got that stuff going on, right? Or you do, walk, do you walk like you're kind of mad and kind of stiff, right? You walk in a certain manner, and so that becomes the metaphor of how you live. You are to live in such a way that the love of Christ comes out through you, that Christian love exudes from you. Love is the regulating principle of your life if you're a Christian. Should I do this? Should I not do this? Can I? Do I have freedom to do this? Do I have freedom not to do this? Right? Right? As you're deciding about all those non-biblical things in life, what is the primary regulating principle? Love. Am I loving the Lord better by doing this? Am I loving others better by doing this? Am I loving the Lord better by saying this critically to somebody? Am I serving other people better by bringing this out that they're probably in sin and they could do better in terms of their lives. You are no longer walking in love by what you eat. Look at the last part of verse, um, of verse 15. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now this, this phrase is a lot more poignant, a lot more powerful and impactful than it might first appear when you're just reading this in Scripture. Right? In our English, it just says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. But the word destroy here is a, is a word that is built on the idea of breaking something with an intensive uh, prefix attached to it. So the idea is to completely destroy, but, but so that you understand, the, the thinking is to bring something to ruin, and it's often used to perish. In the New Testament, it is used often to speak of how the unbeliever who rejects the things of God, they will perish. It, it, so, I mean, perish sounds like a euphemism to me, right? Like, it sounds like you will softly kind of fade into the universe, but it's not. It means that you are going to be completely destroyed. You're going to be undone. And as undone as you will become, right, Christ has sought to accomplish the opposite. See, do not destroy is a command for these Christians who want to, to impose their freedom on this sensitive brother. Or maybe the flip side. Maybe it's the Christian that wants to impose their legalistic standard that is beyond Scripture to be even more holy, and they're trying to enforce that on somebody else. Either way, that individual, according to the Scripture, is seeking by what they eat or do not eat, they're seeking to destroy. And they're seeking to destroy, ironically, the one from whom Christ died. That last phrase is supposed to be a gut punch to us. Seriously, are, are you judging your brother and sister over something, a scruple that is not biblically defined so that you could prove that you're right or that you could demand of them that they should be more right like you or that they, they, they need to be more free, or that they need to be more righteous, or whatever it is. Are you seriously doing that to the seeking of their destruction, their ruin, their perishing, when that, that very individual, in fact, it says, on behalf of whom Christ died. That individual that you're trying to put down and break is the very person that Christ laid his life down for, to rescue, to save, and to give eternal life. Man, when you think about these words carefully, the contrast between you are trying to kill, Christ has died so that they might live. 
It's supposed to be a stark contrast to say, what in the world are you living for? Who are you, Christian? Like, what are you trying to accomplish in this life? The glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ declared? Paul is saying, no, you're not. You might think you are. But by what you eat or by what you demand don't, that we don't eat, you're destroying the very individual for whom Christ has already paid the, 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 the absolute and ultimate price. One commentator, Hendrickson, understands this passage to mean you, by means of your unbrotherly conduct, are treating that other brother in a manner in which, were it not for God's irresistible grace, would destroy him. In other words, if not for the sufficiency and the security of Christ's death for that brother, because he is a Christian, your despising could have spiritually destroyed them. God's sovereign love for him protects him from you. Not even from the devil in that case, from you. Love, right? Love is walk in love for your brother, your brother, an underlying brother or sister in Christ. Love, not destroy the ones for whom Christ has died. Even if their sensitivities are off, even if your sensitivities are off, the point is, are they a brother or sister in Christ? Then offer to them, right, the, the kind of dignity, the kind of love, the kind of expression of graciousness that they should be afforded because they are believers. And Christ has died for their sins in the same way Christ has died for yours. So love your conscientious brother. By conscientious, you guys understand what I mean, uh, that their conscience is sensitive, that they're struggling with what is right and wrong in terms of, uh, in terms of third-order things, right? We're not talking about first-order things in terms of what Scripture says is absolutely true. We're not even talking necessarily about second-order things, the things that are uh, differences amongst Christians, doctrinal differences among Christians that are strong enough that you shouldn't be a member of this church, and I shouldn't be a pastor over your church. And that's okay. We're still first level. We're still gospel believers, and we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We just can't be at the same church. So church-wide, it might divide us. We're talking about the third category. We're talking about things that Scripture doesn't clearly define. Let us give grace. Let us be mindful, and let us remember we are to love, right, that conscientious brother or sister in Christ. The second point. Prioritize gospel blessing prioritize gospel blessing verse 16 so do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil that's under point a don't blemish gospel unity don't blemish gospel unity see don't let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil now now back up a little bit because i don't want you to think that this is still talking about good meaning eating meat right I, I think Paul is speaking a little bit more generally here. He is saying that what you think of as being an excellent and beautiful thing, others can speak of as being evil. It's the word, in terms of speaking evil, it's the word that we get our word blasphemy from. That people could disdain it verbally. They could, they could put it down verbally. Why would that happen? Well, because I think this is not specific to any particular freedom, meaning eating meat, Smoking cigar, you know, I don't know, driving a, a nice car, wearing stockings, watching football on Sundays, right? Stop judging me, right? Like, like, like all these things that we could think about, right? It could be all of those things, but I think more generally, he is saying there is a good. And this is the term for good that is used in the New Testament, not just as the opposite of something that is bad, but good in the sense that it is noble, it is beautiful, it is excellent. And there is something that's noble, beautiful, excellent that we have that we regard highly. It's the gospel. It's the message that Jesus Christ has laid down his life for mine. That though I don't deserve it, that every sin that I have committed, that I will commit in this earthly life and existence, he has paid for in full on the cross. He should not have done that. Because there's nothing in me that was redeemable. There's nothing in me that was, that was delightful or worthwhile. And if you ask the scriptures, and we looked at it, right? In Romans 3 and 4 and 5. Why, why did he choose Jacob and not Esau? 
And God's, I think, sovereign answer is because that's God. I choose whom I choose. I love whom I love. And his answer to you is, why would he rescue a sinner like you and not that other sinner that you work with or that you're friends with or that is a member of your family? Because he's decided to love you. Because he's free as God to love whom he loves. And that's the only explanation. It's not enough. I, I want to know, like, oh, it's because Nam, because, you know, you're kind of good looking. I said, yes, Lord, I knew it. No one will affirm this, but I was positive, right? Like, it, it could be those kind of things that we look for something to say, I knew you saw something good in me, but he didn't. He loved you despite you because that's the kind of God he is. So do not let what you regard, your salvation, their salvation, and the gospel of glory, something that is good, be spoken of as evil. Why would it be spoken of as evil and by whom? By those who hear that this gospel is about the love of God and that, that Jesus proclaimed that anyone that would look upon his followers would know them by their love. And people on the outside looking in, checking that out, would say, man, that is a bunch of baloney. This is Paul saying, don't let the testimony of the goodness of the gospel right, be spoken ill of because of your judgmentalism because of your offensiveness, because you demand others to agree with you. This is, this is okay to eat this, man. Just eat it, right? And treat them badly. Or you, you can't be eating that, man. It's got to be sin, right? Tell them that they can't do something. Outsiders would quickly point out the hypocrisy of Christians proclaiming a gospel of the love of God when they don't even love each other. They cast dispersions on one another, Right? They judge one another. They separate from one another. Don't blemish gospel unity. See, this whole thing is about gospel unity. Handle with care. Prioritize the gospel blessings. Don't, don't blemish gospel unity, verse 16. And then point B, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Don't shrink. This is point B. Don't shrink kingdom blessings. In other words, right, don't blemish gospel unity by being so petty about stuff that doesn't matter. And that's exactly what Paul seems to mean because verse 17, he's saying, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. That's petty and stupid. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom, that, that's, you know, that's uh, um, the scripture's vocabulary um, for what it means for us to belong to the king. You know, when you become a Christian, you're part of God's kingdom. That means you're a full citizen. And um, because we cannot earn our salvation, nor do we get half a salvation and we earn the rest, right? none, none of that nonsense, because of that, um, we are full citizens. If you have placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, trusting in nothing else because nothing else could help, and you recognize your absolute sinfulness, and you're willing to, to, to live for Him and for His glory, and you've given your heart to Him, if that's, if that's where you are, you are a full member of the body of Christ, and you are a full member, a citizen of God's kingdom. No half citizens, no half members. You're all in. You absolutely belong. You're absolutely part of this. And so Paul's reminding them, so... If, if there's a gospel unity that comes as a kingdom blessing, how weird it is, how petty and, and, and ridiculous it is that you have reduced kingdom membership to a matter of eating and drinking. You, you get his argument. You guys are crazy. What are you doing? It is not a matter of eating and drinking. That would be the shrink the value and the blessing of the kingdom down to something that is meaningless and not eternal. But instead, here's the stuff that the kingdom should be about. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I think the phrase in the Holy Spirit is supposed to be applied to all three. Right? This is, this is what the Holy Spirit um, produces as part of the great blessing of being part, being citizens of the king righteousness, and we know that. I mean, Paul's developed that term throughout Romans um, so well. 
It means to be justified or to be declared righteous in a forensic or legal sense. It's not because we are righteous. It's not even because He makes me become more righteous. It is that my unrighteousness and Christ's righteousness are exchanged. And I, I am clothed in His righteousness before a holy judge who is a good judge and who doesn't wink, wink, and let me just get away with junk. Right? I am fully righteous because of who God is. Food and drink won't change that. That's not a comparable value. That can't stand in contrast in, with, with any kind of weight or seriousness to eternal righteousness that is given to me, that is clothed upon me through the blood of Jesus Christ. There's peace. And peace in Scripture always begins with the vertical peace of, of me having a right standing, a content standing with God. Now, peace in Scripture doesn't just simply mean that there's no more hostilities, right? It's not a truce. That kind of peace is like when you say, okay, you know, we hate those guys, they hate us, but let's stop killing each other. Okay, we call it truce. That, that's not the word peace. That's not the Old Testament word shalom, right? In fact, that's, that's still the, 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 you know, the Hebrew, the Jewish blessing, shalom. It's like, it's like hi, but it's the word, you know, peace be to you, shalom. Shalom means to be whole. It means to be complete. So the idea is that we are rightly connected with God in a way that is not just, okay, God's not, God's not mad at me anymore and I'm not mad at him anymore and so we just don't talk. It's not that kind of ceasefire. It is vertically to say that we are right and good and glad and satisfied and whole in our relationship with the Lord. And it begins there, but it always flows out from there. If we have peace with God, then we have peace with one another. These are part of the eternal blessings of kingdom citizenship. Righteousness, peace, and joy. I love that because some of us are tempted, right, to think of sanctification a lot more intensely, a lot more joylessly. But the Word of God keeps bringing us back to why God rescues us. Not just to declare us righteous, not just so that he would reestablish a, a, a good and excellent and whole relationship with us, but that that good and excellent whole relationship with us, establishing his righteousness, would provide for us a gladness of heart that he has created his human beings to enjoy. Their joy in the Holy Spirit. Gladness in our relationship with God, in our relationship to one another. R. Kent Hughes puts it this way, the kingdom of God consists not of externals, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, how you do stuff. It doesn't, it doesn't consist of externals, but of eternals, righteousness, peace, and joy. These are the blessings of, of, of the kingdom, of being part of uh, gospel-transformed believers. So don't shrink kingdom blessings into man, that guy, look at his haircut. Or he needs to get a haircut, you know? Or her hair is too short or too long. Or, you know, they don't wear this. Or they've got that ring in their nose. Or, you, you know, there's endless, endless things. Let us have grace for one another. Because the most important thing is, do they understand what righteousness is? Do they have peace with God because of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have they found the joy of salvation? then that means they're our brother and sister in Christ. And let us not diminish gospel unity over things that are trivial in eternity. The, the, the final point, and we'll close with this one and be half done with this, is serve Christ well in verse 18. Whoever serves thus serves Christ. Uh, whoever thus serves, sorry, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. Whoever thus serves Christ. In other words, whoever serves Christ in this way. Uh, two things to catch from that one. Serving Christ apparently is the main thing. He is ending with the idea of, of belonging in the kingdom, of, ha of having a gospel unity, of being our brother and sister in Christ, and that Christ has died for him, Christ has died for me. We are all one that way. And the height of that, the final thing he'll say on that. Uh, the final identification he will label us with is in this way, you can serve Christ. You are a servant of Christ. That's the main thing. Eating in a certain way or certain things or not eating in a certain way or certain things 
is not the main purpose of your existence. You are to serve Christ, right? In fact, it implies that judgmental non-eating, I can't believe that you eat such a thing, right? Disdainful, indulgent eating, oh yeah, watch me, right? That both of those things are actually, by their heart attitude, the opposite of serving Christ. In fact, here it says, thus serving Christ, or in this way, you should be serving Christ. In what way? Well, in the way we just talked about, promoting righteousness, eternal righteousness, not human righteousness, right? Peace, eternal peace, right? Not just ceasing of, of hostilities, and joy, the kind of joy that only the Lord can provide us in all of it through the Holy Spirit. That's our mission, to lovingly promote righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's serving Christ. And only that kind of a lifestyle versus the lifestyle of passing judgment, only that kind of lifestyle is both acceptable to God and approved by man. Acceptable just simply means that it is well-pleasing, that God loves it. That's what we should want. That's what we should be doing as servants of Christ. We should want to do what is well-pleasing, acceptable, and delightful to the Lord. Approved just means that men, and probably Christians and non-Christians alike, demonstrate a high regard, respect, or esteem for that individual. Why? Because they speak truth. Isn't that what Paul did? He spoke truth. I'm convinced, he said, right, that in all these non-biblical issues, there's nothing that is unclean. If it's edible, you, you, you can eat it, right? If it's edible, you can put it down, and there's nothing by in and of itself that is unclean. That's the truth. But he acts in a loving way that says, man, if that brother is, is injured because I'm eating these kind of things, I will not eat that stuff in front of it. And in fact, I, I could just forego eating this altogether because this is just food. This is just a freedom. Come on, man. This is your brother in Christ. One pastor says, a weak, the weak conscience shrivels his Christianity by seeing the externals as, as a, road greater, a road to greater righteousness, while the strong trivializes, trivializes his faith by insisting on his rights to the externals. Whether we are weak or strong, we are kingdom citizens seeking to be servants of Christ and finding God to find us acceptable, being well-pleased with us, and, and having a testimony of men that they would approve and think highly of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love your conscientious brother. That was point one. To prioritize gospel blessings. That was point two. And we'll look at the others next week. Let's close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your work in and through us. And even as we are still trying to grow in understanding these things better, we pray that you would grant to us a heart of contentment and humility to honor our Savior in all ways that we conduct ourselves, especially to our brothers and sisters in the household of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.